All right, my friends, you can be seated. And if, like me, you are intrigued and delighted by the conversation of Easter Bunny in the back, um, I don't know that uh, my message will, will touch on that in particular, but <laughs> I, uh, I sure love Easter. I sure love Easter, and I want to start it out. Christ is risen. Amen. You know, one of the other cool things about Easter, I mean, besides the resurrection of Jesus and transforming death into life and all that great stuff, is that you get to learn new words. I mean, I remember when I was probably the age of the Easter Bunny little girl back there, I, I heard the word ineffably and potentate, like in the, in the first hymn that we sang, and I'm like, what is that? So um, if you want to improve your SAT scores, your ACT scores, or just get into an um, AP class, uh, teenagers, you should always come to church on Easter. I'm glad you're here today. So, um, so I got a question for you. How many of you like your name, like your first name? How many of you like it well enough, but like you think mom and dad could have been a little bit more either creative or less creative? Any of those folks in here? Okay, okay. You know, I, uh, <laughs> chances are your parents put a lot of time and energy into figuring out your name, and almost certainly... They chose the one they thought that was best. I mean, maybe you had a family connection. I don't know that there's anybody here with this name, but maybe you're named Elwood, for instance, and maybe that was your great-grandfather's name and the family really loved him, and maybe your, your dad and liked Dan Aykroyd and thought that was a good idea. Um, you know, or maybe just because it sounds good. I remember when I was, again, about the age of the kids that are running off to um, KP Kids, there was, in the church I grew up in, in the farm country of uh, Belvedere, Illinois, there was this really nice, they were older than I was, so I, I didn't know them well, but there were these nice brother-sister uh, pair, and their last name was Link, and the daughter's name was Crystal, and the son's name was Copper. So Crystal Link and Copper Link. And, I, and clearly the parents loved them and, and tried to be creative and, and, and really tried to protect them in the future. Otherwise, they would have named them, you know, Cuff and Missing. Um, so there's all sorts of reasons why we have the names we have. And, and for many of us, those reasons have to do with our parents' values or the, the biblical scriptures. There's a lot of girls, uh, women named Faith or Grace or Cherish. Um, my own name, Daniel, means judge of God. I mean, judge assigned by God to be a judge, which I'm su not super judgmental. So I'm like, eh, all right, it's a good name. He was brave, the whole lion's, the whole lion's den thing. So when, uh, when Laura and I were getting ready to, or praying that God would bring us two children to adopt, or, or more, uh, we were decided we're going to give them biblical names, and we'll just wait to see how things turn out. So our two sons, Jeremy and Eli, those are both anglicized or original versions of the two Hebrew prophets, uh, Jeremiah, and well, there's a priest Eli, Eli, and then there's Elijah and Elisha. Um, I half seriously lobbied for Uriah. Is anybody familiar with the story of Uriah, the Hittite? His wife was Bathsheba. So Anyway, I thought he was a noble man who did the right thing even when the odds were against him, but with a name like Uriah, my wife had some reasons for pushing back. <laughs> so so we, uh, we, adopted the, we adopted the name um, Jeremy for our oldest son, which means God will uplift. And it was also because there's this very, very well-known verse, especially around graduation day, right? Um, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. 
Uh, that's as far as, as far as I'll read. Then it goes into some, some uh, other references. But for, uh, for a little boy who was placed in our arms from a, from a mother who had made some, some bad choices with drugs and, and finances, who had faced challenges her whole life, including abuse and abandonment, this seemed like a, a, a valid name and a valid reason for picking our son Jeremy's name. And then our son Eli um, was a, simply means my God. L means God, and the I is the pronomial suffix it called. It means my, so my God. Now, for, for those of you who, uh, who have more than one child, you know when there's a little, little kid that comes along, a little uh, baby, if you're, if you're like most parents, you know in advance the baby's coming. So we did not with Eli. It was like a phone call, and then like 18 hours later, we had to go pick him up, right? So, so you have a chance to prepare the other children. Like, okay, your baby brother is coming. Your baby sister is coming. And I know many of you choose a name early, and you, you teach that to the other kids in the family so they're excited about, you know, I, I heard once in the cafe recently that, that my brother is Matthew. I'm like, oh, where is he? Well, he's still in my mom's tummy, but I promise he's coming. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds a little bit like Easter. Um, but anyway, so when, uh, when we had our, our, our two boys, so Jeremy was about three and a half, and then Eli, uh, when he was placed in our arms, um, we've got a picture here. I think this is actually from the, the adoption agency itself. Um, we brought him home that day, and, of course, all the neighbors came over to see. They've been praying for us and excited for this. And so uh, Jeremy, who's kind of... Uh, outspoken or intro, uh, extroverted when they came in. He goes, come see my baby brother. His name is, and he said, he said mom, what's his name again? So, so names are important. In fact, uh, St. Paul in Philippians 4 refers to Christians as co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. And all through Lent, if you've been a regular, which I'm, it's dark, so I can't see if you've been a regular, but if you have been, I guess and many of you have been, you know that over this uh, season of Lent, Chris and I have been preaching se a series on the I am statements of Jesus in the book of John. So the different claims, the different names that Jesus called for himself. And uh, uh, you can just think back if you remember these sermons. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep, for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Somehow we got that name tag wrong. Did you ever write your own name tag wrong? Um, it should be the way, the truth, and the life. So, oh well. I am the true vine, and I am the resurrection today. So, Easter, the biggest day in the history of the world, the biggest mystery, the biggest victory, is, is such an astronomically big concept. I wanted just to kind of locate it a little bit more close to the ground in the names, the names of the people involved. And so, I want to open up the scripture for a few minutes with you, John chapter 20, and we're going to look at, we're going to look at the many miracles involved in this small part of the gospel of John, the miracle of Easter, the miracle of resurrection, and then I want us to think about the names that were involved as well. So permit me, I'm going to have the um, scripture readings on the, on the board, but if you, on the board, on the screens, <laughs> tell how old I am. Um, and if you want to follow along on your phone or, or whatnot, go ahead too. Or if you actually brought a paper one, people still do that. That's, that's welcome too. Anyway, we're at John chapter 2, um, verse number 1. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Okay, so this is really brings up mystery number one. Who rolled the stone away? I mean, it's kind of a fundamental question. Who could have rolled the stone away? Um, and and I, love how it, I love how John writes, the stone had been rolled away. He's not going to say who did it. You know, it's the passive voice. I don't know if your kids have ever used the passive voice or your spouse, if they've done something that they have to admit to but don't really want to like point to themselves as the, as the perpetrator. I know when Eli was in uh, high school, he liked to use the passive voice if he didn't do well on a test. He'd come home and I remember once he said, bad news, mom. Um, the math test was harder than expected and it, it did not end up getting passed. <laughs> Well, his mother was an English major. She could figure out what that meant, and he, you know, he still had to do more homework the next month anyway. So anyway, but the question, who rolled the stone away, is still there because the rock was huge. It was set in place either by a small group of Roman soldiers or by a group of Jewish grave diggers who had to get their work done in a quick, or grave diggers, in this case, cemetery wardens because it was in a, in a rock cave-like carved sepulcher, so they had to get their work done before Passover. And so on Passover, no, self-respect, or no self-respecting Jewish man would work, right? That would just be an insult to, to the Almighty God. So we know it couldn't have been Jewish men that rolled the stone away. And the Romans didn't care. In fact, in Matthew, Pilate sets guards in front of the tomb so that the stone wouldn't get rolled away. So it's clearly, clearly a mystery about, quote, who moved it. But for those of us who know the full story who know the power of God, and who knew, know not only was, was the stone rolled away, but the body of Christ was raised, resurrected, it's not a major mystery. But to the people who first heard the story in the book of Matthew, it sure was. Well, they, they continue. So Matthew, so then the, then the next verse here. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Which pronoun do you notice sounds odd? The we. Who's the we? John said only that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, and then Mary Magdalene sees the tomb open, and then Mary Magdalene runs back to tell the guys. And then she says we. Well, all right. Normally, um, we know that uh, Bible writers edit things to kind of focus our eyes on a story. Most likely, the we she's talking about was, was the other Mary. Pastor Chris mentioned that just on Good Friday. There was Mary Magdalene and Ma- the other Mary, Mary of Bethany. Remember, Jesus' kind of non-work friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So it was probably those two Marys who were both very close to Jesus, very committed to learning from him. So it was probably these two, but it's not mentioned. You see, see Mary Magdalene was the hard luck woman who'd been possessed by seven demons, two of the Gospels show that Jesus um, exercised those seven demons, which probably means some combination of mental illness and physical impairment, all sorts of reasons that were just attributed to demons. But, But to call this woman who was waiting at the tomb to see Jesus a septidemoniac wouldn't be wrong. As painful as it is, she was a woman whose life had been hard, who'd known abandonment, challenge, and condemnation all her life long, Mary Magdalene. But the other Mary that John just kind of erases, doesn't talk about, 
That was the good Mary, the one who had a life with, with probably parents who had, had the resources. She was, she was a quiet, good Sunday school type student who loved sitting at Jesus' feet. If you remember the story of her and Martha, her sister, having an argument there in the living room about who should help get the dinner ready for Jesus. So the good church kid is the one that John leaves out. The hard luck Mary, Mary Magdalene, she's the one that John wanted to talk about. Well, the, the, the scripture moves a little faster now. Peter and the other disciples started out for the, from the tomb, for the tomb. They were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings were lying there, and while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. So there had been, there had been some, some designed thought into how this grave was left, generally not the work of, of robbers. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For until then, they hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead, and then they went home. Okay, another mystery, who's the other disciple? If you've been coming to church for a while, if you've been hearing the sermons that Chris and I preach, when, when the word other disciple or the disciple Jesus loved gets mentioned, does anybody here remember which disciple we're talking about? John. All right, this point but points to Gryffindor or whatever. <laughs> Good for you. Um, so yes, yes, um, He's talking about John. John, the author of the gospel, is probably talking about himself. And then that makes you wonder, well, well, why does he not mention himself? Is it like, speaking of, is it like uh, Voldemort, who's the name that must not be named? Or is it Yahweh, Jehovah? Now, I, I really apologize to Python fans. I just thought I shouldn't throw the whole stoning scene from Life of Brian here on Easter morning. But... <laughs> Um, you might want to look it up after lunch. It's a, it's a good one. So, yeah, there were some names you didn't say, like the name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah in the anglicized version. But why doesn't he say the other names? Well, it's probably because he was trying to actually draw attention to himself by not saying his own name. By calling himself the other disciple, or the disciple who Jesus loved, it kind of focuses our eyes on the mystery that, that he's talking about. And let's be honest, Disciples were people too. He wanted to be the famous one, right? He had to compete with his non-work friend, Jesus' non-work friend Lazarus, his work friend, kind of heir apparent St. Peter. So John was kind of pushing it in there for his history's sake. Hey, remember, I'm the one he really liked a lot, just saying. <laughs> so so that, that is important. And I think, that, I think that even though John's trying too hard, if we remember that Jesus picked real people for his disciples, even while he was alive on earth and could coach them, it's not unreasonable that he picks real disciples like you and me for his work in the kingdom now that he's gone. Anyway, so we continue. Matthew uh, 20, verse 11. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and one sitting at the foot of the place of the, of the stone table, sepulcher table, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, the angels asked her, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. Okay, wait, wait, so here's a, here's a, here's a problem. <laughs> so you're a grieving person coming to a grave to mourn the, the, 
the teacher that you loved, the teacher that you followed, the teacher who you so respected and you thought was going to change the world, and then the, the grave is open, and you look at it, and there's like two angels sitting on the, the, the top and the bottom of the, of the grave table. Why didn't Mary seem more terrified? I mean, imagine if you're expecting your, your, your spouse is at home, and you drive up to the driveway, maybe you stayed late after work, it's dark out, and you, you press the button for your garage door opener, and up it goes, and, and you don't see his or her car. Like, well, that's weird. And instead, there's two angels on your lawn chairs, one where the trunk is and one where the engine is, and you just say, hey. <laughs> Most people would be scared. I think, I think was, was the problem that, that she, had, she had been so exhausted, distraught, and hysterical that she didn't notice there were two supernatural beings in the tomb? Or because she had been possessed by seven demons. Was she kind of used to the supernatural thing? And she's like, hey, hey, guys. Or was it, were angels more commonplace back then than they are now? I mean, not like all the time. You don't see them every day. But, but they, you didn't never see them either. Kind of like, you know, maybe like Pat Mahomes at a Whole Foods. Somewhere in between that, somewhere in between that, it might be just as simple is that John has a story to tell us and the angels aren't the focus. Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, this lower class, hard scrabble, difficult childhood woman. She's the one that John wants us to see. Anyway, so she turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, what are you looking for? Now, she thought he was the gardener, so she said, Sir, if you've taken him, tell me where you've put him, that I may go and get him. All right. I don't know about you, but going to fetch a body that had been in the tomb for three days, or by, by modern counting, maybe 36 to 48 hours tops, the body wouldn't have smelled good. The body would have, would have been unpleasant to handle, and the body would have been heavy and stiff. So, so what on earth possessed Mary to think she was going to be able to carry his body? Well, it may be like the story of a mom who can, who can lift up a minivan because her, her, her child is trapped underneath. Or maybe for people that have a, a life and death decision to make, and this was life and death to her, she made a promise before she had a plan. All of us would do that. If our, if our, if our child or, or someone beloved to us had a problem, it's not uncommon for us to say, I will, I will help you. I will, I will walk beside you. We'll, try, we'll make this right, even if we don't know exactly what the plan is. And that, that I think, is what Mary Magdalene did. She made a promise before she had a plan. And then, and then, Jesus said, Mary, calmly, gently, he said, Mary. How can he possibly have had the presence of mind to say to Mary Magdalene, this person who'd been one of his, one of his probably second-ring disciples, how would have he had the presence of mind in the deepness of heart to call her by name? I mean, like the hymn we sang, 
there ain't no grave. We know that Jesus, not only was he, was he betrayed by his closest friend, he was dragged as a spectacle or a, or a defendant in front of no fewer than three different trials, right? The, the high priest, the local king, the imperial governor. And then he was tortured, taunted, crucified, and suffocated on the cross. And then his spirit spent a day and a half, two days, three days, as the, as the Jewish calendar counts them, in hell, battling the demons, battling Satan for all the souls of humanity. That's the atonement theory of the earliest church, by the way. If you're like, I don't remember that from Sunday school. Yeah, if you went to Sunday school 1,500 years ago, that's what you would have heard. And then he wakes up in a cold sepulcher alone. And in his first hour out of the grave, he manages to ask a question to Mary Magdalene tenderly and maybe a little playfully. Hey, who are you looking for? And he calls her by name because he knows her, he remembers her, and most of all, he values her. Well, she turned to him again and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. It actually, the, the I ending like Eli means my God, Rabboni, and Rabbi mean my teacher. The I is the my. So she cries out, my teacher. Jesus said, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, which probably means she had already clung to him right? She had wrapped her arms around her and grabbed him and hugged him, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples then and told them, I have seen the Lord. And then she gave him that message. Now, why? Why is this don't cling me thing, don't cling to me thing in the in the story at all? Well, a couple things. I think the way that Jesus says it implies that she had already hugged him. That tells the reader that he was not only a physical body, he wasn't just a like, spirit that you go like this. Has anybody seen ghosts? Right? So, I mean, there's this interplay between the ghosts who had died there in this, in this mansion or this castle and then the, the new homeowners who are kind of rehabbing it, turning it into a B&B. Um, he wasn't a ghost. She hugged him physically, and probably after a second or two, he said to her, pushing her away just a little bit, don't cling to me, Mary. Jesus is saying, yes, Mary, I have been your teacher, as you said. You are beloved sheep of my fold, a lamb of my own flock, and a sinner of, your own redeeming, of my own redeeming, but I didn't come just to have an individual relationship with you. I came to, to tell you and assure you that I love you. I came back to reconcile myself with the disciples who abandoned me. But my real goal is to go back to where the Father is and then be the Savior of all the world. I've come back to have a relationship with every child of God who trusts in me, who's willing to trust me, follow me, and bless the others in my name. He says, I long for an individual relationship with each of you, but it is not just for your sake, but for the sake of the whole world. In fact, and at the end of this chapter, at the end of John 20, maybe, you'd, maybe you've like stopped reading every Easter. Like, okay, I got the message. Good to go. There's the story about Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas. And then there's this. It's, it's the original ending of the Gospel of John. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miracles, miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, 
you might have life by the power of his name. You know, the miracle of Easter, my friends, is that Jesus died for you and for me. And the miracle of Easter is that he died for us personally and that his love for you brought him to the cross and the power of that love raised him from the dead. That's how powerful his love is. But it is not just for you. That's just for you. It's for us together and it's for the world outside that he also died to save. You know, I love that the Messiah had just stepped out of the grave as the savior of the world. He went out of his way to make sure he touched base with the lowest class, the lowest ranking person in his whole circle of disciples. This formerly mentally ill, demon-possessed, physically impaired, unmarried, probably sexually promiscuous poor woman. He didn't call her any of those names. He called her by her name. You know, a recent post in Kind Earth Kitchen reminded me of this Easter morning focus. I don't know, has anybody seen this picture? I must subscribe to really weird feeds. The man here is 85, and he insists on taking his wife's hand everywhere they go. So they were outside on the street, and a stranger passed by and asked the man, it seems like you guys are together. Why does your wife look so distracted, like, like she's not really with you? And the man said simply, she has advanced Alzheimer's. So the man said, well, would your wife get scared if you let her go? Because it looks like she might want to go somewhere else. And he said, no, but she'd be in trouble, and I don't want to let her go. Well, he says, does she even know who you are? And the husband said, no, she doesn't know who I am. She hasn't recognized me for years. Surprised and touched, the young stranger said, and yet you still continue to guide your wife everywhere, even though she doesn't recognize you, even though she doesn't know who you are. And then the husband smiled, and he looked at the stranger, and he said, that's right. She doesn't know who I am. But I know who she is. And she's the love of my life. Brothers and sisters, you may not be here today because you are totally sure about Jesus. You might have just got dragged by the family, right? Or, or the spouse. And that doesn't matter. You don't have to know who Jesus is because he knows who you are. You don't have to claim him now because he's already claimed you. You don't have to reach and take his hand every time you should, because doggone it, he's reaching down and taking yours. And most of all, you don't have to always call on his name, because he's whispering out yours. That is the power of the open tomb. That the love of God is so powerful that it can not only defeat our sin but our death and it can change hearts and the world with his love. Church, we are an Easter people. That means that we, we grab God's hand when we can remember to take it. But he doesn't forget to give it. 
And it means that like Jesus, after a little bit of hug time with Mary, he pushes us a step back and says, now, I got work to do. And so do you. Church, Christ is risen. Now let's get to work. Amen.